Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, East African leaders condemn Burundi coup attempt. Ordinary people bear the brunt of political of conflict in Sudan's Darfur region and concerns over the plight of South Sudanese refugees in Ethiopia. In economics, Kenya Pipeline says cartels are creating artificial fuel shortage and in sports news, South African cycling team ready to make history in the Tour de France. The first up the news with Anusa. A very good morning to you. There is uncertainty over claims of a coup in Burundi. Armed Forces Chief General Prime Niangoba announced that a coup against President Pierre Nkurunziza has failed. The claim has, however, been denied by opponents of the Central African nation's leader. There is also uncertainty over the whereabouts of Nkurunziza, whose attempt to return home from Tanzania after the coup was announced was blocked after his opponents seized the airport. Some reports say he is still in Tanzania, while others say he is in Uganda. A top Burundian general, Godefroid Niambare, announced yesterday that he was forming a transitional government after more than two weeks of protests against Nkurunziza's re-election bid. South Africa has meanwhile urged for a political solution to the ongoing crisis in Burundi. Deputy President Saul Ramaphosa says he's hopeful East African leaders will broker a settlement between Nkurunziza and disgruntled opposition parties in Burundi. Sirakimani reports. South Africa was invited at the emergency summit as an observer, having mediated a peace agreement that ended more than a decade of civil war in Burundi. There were conflicting reports on the whereabouts of President Kurunzinza. Kurunzinza had earlier defied warnings that his bid for a third term would plunge the country into chaos. He also refused to heed to calls for the postponement of presidential polls set for June this year. The Somali government has executed two men convicted of killing four lawmakers and an intelligence officer in a series of attacks. Somali authorities say the men, Shuhib Ibrahim Mahdi and Farad Ali Abdi, were members of the Al-Shabaab militant group. A military court in the capital, Mogadishu, tried and convicted the defendants, who were then executed by a firing squad at a police academy. Among the lawmakers killed were Sado Ali Wasame, a popular singer who was shot in Mogadishu. The widow of the late former South African President Nelson Mandela has joined prominent activists to call for a full inquiry on sexual abuse by United Nations peacekeepers and personnel. Grasa Michal says a commission of inquiry would show a speedy way of getting to the perpetrators. This following the furor over alleged child sexual assault 
by French troops in the Central African Republic. The campaign, dubbed Code Blue, is to demand change in the United Nations' handling of sexual abuse allegations and hopes to enlist countries in a push for action. Former Zimbabwean Energy Minister Elton Mangoma, arrested on corruption charges, has appeared in the Harare Magistrates Court. He was granted a 1,000 US dollar bail and was ordered to surrender his passport to the state. Mangoma, a top official of the Opposition Movement for Democratic Change Renewal Party, is being accused of criminal abuse of public office when he was still Energy Minister in 2012. That's the news. Headlines at 6.30, rather 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It is exactly 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Thursday, May the 14th, the 134th day of 2015, with 231 days left in the year. In our top story, East African leaders meeting in Dar es Salaam have condemned yesterday's coup attempt against Burundi's President Pierre Nkurunziza and call for a return to constitutional order. The East African community had called an emergency summit to discuss the political crisis in Burundi but was forced to carry on without President Gurunzinza after reports of a coup in the country. Sarah Kimani has more from all was set for the summit called to discuss the political crisis in Burundi. Presidents from four East African countries were here, and so was South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, the African Union Chairperson Dr. Kosazana Lamini Zuma, as well as representatives from the U.S. and the European Union. President Pian Kronzinza was nowhere to be seen. It is then that news of the coup in Burundi broke out. The meeting was thrown into disarray. Leaders here huddled into groups and then moved to a closed-door meeting which lasted for several hours. Jakaya Kikwete is Tanzania's president and also the chairperson of the East African community. The summit is of the view that it does not solve the problems of Burundi. We don't accept the coup. We condemn it in the strongest terms possible and we, we, we call upon return to constitutional order in that country. On looking at the situation in Burundi, we all agreed that the conditions at the moment are not conducive for elections to be held as scheduled by the National Electoral Commission. So we call upon the authorities in Burundi to postpone the elections to a period not beyond the mandate of the current government. Thirdly, as the region continues to consult with all the stakeholders to make sure that the situation in Burundi normalizes and elections can be held in free, fair and peaceful manner in respect of the constitution of Burundi, the electoral law and in the spirit of the Arusha Accords, the summit condemns the violence, calls upon all the parties to make sure that the violence stops. Protests began in Burundi three weeks ago following the announcement by President Kurunzinza Speti that he will vie for a third term. Sarah Kimani, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. 
The UN Secretary-General has urged all parties in Burundi to exercise calm and restraint following reports of a coup in that country. And while the global organization tries to verify reports of the push, as it pertains to fluid developments on the ground, it continues to walk a fine line as to who is responsible for the unraveling political situation in Burundi. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Celebrations on the streets as reports of a coup filter through, but too early for the UN to confirm developments, although the Secretary-General is urging calm through his spokesperson, Stefan Dujeric. We're following from here with great concern the developments on the ground in Burundi. Uh, the Secretary-General urgently calls on all parties to exercise calm and restraint. He reminds all Burundian leaders of the need to preserve peace and stability in a country that has suffered so grievously from previous bouts of violence. We're continuing to evaluate the developments uh, on the ground as the situation is very fluid. The UN envoy Said Jinnit, who has been facilitating political dialogue in the country, is now in Tanzania for a regional summit on the situation in Burundi. We asked Dujeric whether the UN believed it was a bad idea for President Nkurunziza to seek a third term given developments on the ground. We're obviously, uh, as I said, following these developments uh, very closely. I think on a more general, uh, on a more general note, uh, I think I would refer you back to the Secretary General's, I think, very direct language that he used uh, at, the, uh, at a recent uh, African Union summit, where he said people around the world have expressed their concern about leaders who refuse to leave office when their terms end. And he says, I share those concerns. This is what the UN chief said during a press conference at the AU summit in January. I urge leaders in Africa and around the world to respect constitutional and legal term limits on their terms of office. I call on them to listen to their people and respect their wishes and aspirations expressed through the democratic process. Band spokesperson Stefan Dujeric was pressed on whether the UN therefore supported the coup in Burundi. I don't think anybody is uh, welcoming or recognizing a coup which is an un, un, you know, unconstitutional change um, of, uh, of power. I think as, as what we know now is that the situation remains very fluid. We're trying to get more details as to what's actually going, going on on the ground in, in Bunjumbura. France has requested an urgent meeting of the Security Council, which is expected on Thursday. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. Burundi's Army Forces Chief General Prime Nyongabo says an attempted coup against President Pierre Nkurunziza has failed, although the claim has quickly been denied by opponents of the Central African nation's leader. This is also, there is also uncertainty over the whereabouts of Nkurunziza, whose attempt to return home from Tanzania after the coup was announced was blocked after his opponents seized the airport. A top Burundian general, former intelligence chief Godefroid Nyombare, launched the coup yesterday, capping weeks of violent protest against the president's controversial bid for a third term. To discuss this further, we are now joined on the line by Dirk Gotze, a political science professor at the University of South Africa. Good morning, Prof, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. 
Good morning. Thank you very much. Now, Professor, there seems to be confusion as to whether a coup has failed or not. What is your take on this? Was this a coup? Well, in my view, yes, it, it, it was a coup. Um, and it was staged not by the, the whole defense force or the army, but by a, a very particular uh, section of it, um, led by the former intelligence head. Um, I think the, the fact that the, the main question will be is a factual one. Do they control very specific um, installations like the International Airport, like the Broadcasting Corporation, um, and also whether they have some support? And it looks like in all cases it is so. Um, there is a general popular support. We know that since the 26th of April there has been a lot of public demonstrations against the incumbent president um, and those protesters have now joined the the, the army or the, the or the coup. So uh, effectively, I think we we do see that uh, that it is a, a coup at the moment. Now, there's been talk in with regards to um, the United Nations and other leaders saying the situation in Burundi remains or de- developments remain fluid. What is the meaning of that? Well, I, I think it is because there's uncertainty about the status of President Nkurunziza, uh, where he is at the moment, um, to, to, because there's also conflicting uh, statements by the, the chief of the defense forces who denies that there's a coup. Um, there was also some questions about the trial of the police. But I think effectively what we are seeing now is, is that there's no alternative government at the moment. Uh, the president... Um, cannot govern the country from uh, from wherever he is. I think there's some suggestions that he's back in Dar es Salaam, uh, but he's effectively not in control of the country, and and that means that. Uh, but there's at the same time also not an alternative. The 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 coup leaders have suggested that they are going to call uh, form what they call a committee of salvation, um, to serve as a type of a transitional government. Uh, but that hasn't also been really established into control of the country. So that is the why it is so fluent. There's no one at this stage actually in control of uh, Burundi. Now, why is he not quitting? And could this plunge Burundi back to war? There is the potential, but I think what, what has happened now is, is that instead of developing into a sort of an uncontrollable public uprising and demonstrations, the military intervened. And that is what happens quite often when there's a situation where the, it looks like the civilian population um, is, is going to take uh, control of, of, of the situation. The government cannot control it anymore. Then very often the, the military intervenes. We had two examples of that. Last year was Burkina Faso. It's almost an identical example of the same situation, and in 2010 it was in Niger. Both, both of those interventions by the military who were officially called coups, but it were actually sort of acceptable or democratic coups, were all aimed against the, the attempts by the, the president then to t- try to extend the terms of office to a third term. Um, and in, in both cases, the, the African Union ultimately accepted it. Um, officially, it is called the unconstitutional change of government, but the attempt by a president to change the constitution and to also extend it to a certain is equally regarded as an unconstitutional change of government. So the AU is caught between two of the worst options. 
And and I think what uh, what they are going to do in in uh, the case of Burundi is to make sure that the military does not take control of government, but then a civilian type of transitional government will be established. That a new date for an election will be set, and that uh, President Nkurunziza will be disqualified as a potential candidate. Now, Prof, response from the leaders who were there, who were in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania to meet with President Nkurunziza to discuss the issues in Burundi was the reaction seemed to be shock and disbelief and uh, a call for uh, uh, peace and, and, and everything to go back to normalcy. How does, and then there was a, another closed meeting after that, after Perez and Gurunziza had left, there was another closed meeting. And uh, now how will this uh, uh, meeting have uh, an impact on what these leaders decide to do, as, for instance, uh, the Eastern Bloc and the AU and uh, also the UN? Because now it goes back to the issue of Africa dealing with their own issues. Yes, well, I, I think it's going to be in the hands, first of all, of the African Union. The, the East African community met now. Uh, they couldn't resolve it. As I understand it, President Nkuziza actually didn't attend the meeting in Dar es Salaam because this, the coup happened at the same time. Um, the, the response is predictable, and it's very much in principle of what they are supposed to do, and that is to say that it's an unconstitutional change of government which is correct in terms of a strict interpretation of the African Charter on Democracy Elections and Governance of 2007 and the Lume Declaration. So this is what we will have to expect from both the regional organization and the African Union. But now as the next step, you can't simply leave it there. There, there must be some form of intervention, uh, diplomatic intervention, um, and I think that is where the, some of the African, the regional leaders will have to play a role. Someone like President Kagame or Museveni, or and as well as the African Union, someone like Dr. Dlamini Zuma will most possibly become involved. The Peace and Security Council of the African Union will become involved. Um, but as I've indicated with the examples that we have, and that Niger and Burkina Faso, is that if there is a transitional government established with a clear commitment of a timetable of an election that will be established, that it is, the intention is not to create a military government, but it was merely a military intervention in order to resolve the current political crisis, then it will not, then they won't act in the same way as, for example, against Madagascar, where they they just um, they suspended their membership, they introduced sanctions and those type of things. Now, Prof, what is the issue with African leaders not wanting to let go of power? Why is Pierre, uh, President Pierre Nkurunziza holding on to power? Well, that is you know, the very nature of politics. We see it all over the world. The presidents become so used to that, that position that there's so much uh, privilege involved in it. They become also in their own minds um, so much... Uh, uh, necessary for the existence of their own countries in their, in their own view that they believe that those countries cannot continue with their presence. Um, so power just starts to corrupt. Um, and I think that is one of the, the, the main reasons why the, the introduction of the two terms um, is so important, is, is to, to try to prevent that from happening. 
Um, and uh, we, we, we've seen it in, 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 in countries uh, not beyond Africa where, where the same problem exists. So that is really the, the motivation and the reason why the, the idea of a limitation on the number of terms uh, become so important. But just to follow up on, on, on this one example, now we are quite soon going to see a similar situation in Rwanda. President Kagame also wants to extend his period to a certain In Rwanda, the terms are seven years, so it means we are, would have served already 14 years and want another seven years. There's some talk about President Museveni doing the same, President Kabila in the DRC also the same. So uh, we've seen it once happened where it was sort of constitutionally accepted in Namibia with President Nyoma. Afterwards, uh, Namibia reverted back to the two-term uh, presidential period. So there is a growing consensus in Africa that the two terms or, um, is the preferable one. Um, but the old generation or the older generation of, of, of leaders, presidents, still try to keep to their power. And I think that's the main tension that exists at the moment. Professor Dirk, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Now, this morning, we ask you what motivates some African leaders to disregard presidential term limits. Give us your thoughts on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa 1. What motivates some African leaders to disregard presidential term limits? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, right Africa, Africa, Wema. Sun rising. Your soleil elevé. We are Wema. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonani. Africa, Mulishani, Mulibonji. Africa, Yomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from. We are one people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.22 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Ordinary people are bearing the brunt of renewed conflict in the East Darfur region of Sudan, according to the UN senior representative in Darfur. In inter-tribal warfare driven by land ownership disputes has recently broken out again in the vicinity of Abu Karinka and Adila towns. 
Two years ago, 120,000 local people were forced to flee their homes in this area, adding to what the UN has called incredible humanitarian suffering. Priscilla Lecomte from UN Radio asked Geert Capellaria, the UN humanitarian coordinator in Sudan, for an update on the situation. Heavy fighting has started in the uh, state of East Darfur. It's one of the five states of uh, Darfur in western Sudan. The fighting is between two uh, major tribes, the Malia tribe on the one hand and the Seven Rezegat tribe on the other hand. This is not the first time that the two tribes are clashing. Land ownership is, is the main drive behind the fighting. Uh, the uh, humanitarian country team uh, are very concerned that we will see many thousands of very, very vulnerable people, women, children particularly, are at risk again of carrying the burden of another conflict, I would say, in Darfur. So therefore also the call upon the parties in East Darfur to stop the fighting, to go back to the negotiation table and to uh, invest in the development in Darfur rather than in the fighting. The conflict which has uh, started recently, is this a new kind of conflict or is it the same source of conflict that has been going on for over a decade? It is very much a conflict pattern that we have seen over the last decade. It is fighting amongst tribes, land ownership being an important drive. About the humanitarian situation, you say that 120 people are in need of humanitarian assistance. That is for East Darfur, that is for the whole Darfur at large. It's important to know that in Sudan, we are a humanitarian community facing humanitarian needs of over 5 million people, of which the majority is living in Darfur. So this new conflict between the Rezegat and the Maali is just adding to an already incredible humanitarian suffering uh, that the people of Sudan have been facing for over a decade. You are asking to be granted access, right, to the people uh, in need. What are your fears if Ocha cannot reach uh, the population in need? It is an imperative for the parties to ensure that we as humanitarian community have immediate and unconditional access to the area that we are able to provide life-saving but also protection support to the affected population. And we need to do that immediately. We do appeal to the parties in conflict, but we do appeal also to the government of Sudan to allow the international community, to allow the entire national and international humanitarian community to access the affected uh, population to ensure impartial assistance to those affected. That was Khed Kapeliare, the UN humanitarian coordinator in Sudan, speaking to Priscilla Lecomp from UN Radio. The number of South Sudanese refugees who have fled to Ethiopia since fighting broke out in South Sudan in 2013 has passed the 200,000 mark and more are expected amid fresh conflict across the border. UNHCR field staff have observed a sharp increase in new South Sudanese arrivals from some 1,000 people a month in the first quarter of this year to more than 4,000 refugees registered in April. Koleta Wanjohi reports. Conflict began in South Sudan in December 2013 when forces loyal to President Salva Kiir engaged militarily with rebels loyal to former Vice President of the country Riek Mashar. 
Attempts by the Intergovernmental Agency for Development to have peace talks between the warring parties hit a deadlock in March 2015 after President Salva Kiir and rebel leader Riek Machar failed to reach a comprehensive peace agreement. Days after the two parties left Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa, fighting resumed in oil-rich areas of Upper Nile and Unity States. The result has been an increase of South Sudan refugees into Ethiopia. Kisut Gebrer Exabir, the United Nations Human Commission for Refugees spokesperson for Ethiopia, says that the number of refugees in flux per month has increased four times. If you compare it to the, to the first quarter of the year, which we were receiving an average of 1,000 refugees a month, in April we received more than 4,000. And the trend so far in May is also uh, even more than, more than it's, we're likely to receive more than uh, what we received in April. So uh, it, it, it appears that uh, according to our contingency planning, we were expecting to receive up to 110,000 uh, South Sudanese refugees in 2015. So the, the trend uh, today shows that we probably are right in, in planning that way. The refugee agency says that while some refugees say they are fleeing from the ongoing fighting, others, however, say they are fleeing as a precautionary measure because they don't want to be trapped if conflict erupts and the rains have flooded the rivers they have to cross. The youth, specifically boys, are escaping from expected forceful admission into the different military groups. Kisut Gebrezabir, the United Nations Human Commission for Refugees spokesperson in Ethiopia, says that although a big number of refugees were expected this year, the funding may turn out to be a huge challenge. We have planned for uh, a maximum of 110,000 more South Sudanese refugees in 2015 and our financial requirements are also based on that. Uh, but to date, the South, the South Sudan situation uh, funding level is uh, very low. Uh, uh, it's only 14 percent. Uh, funded, uh, so uh, we we expect uh, donors to respond uh, more quickly as uh, more more and more refugees are coming. At the moment, the government of Ethiopia and the refugee agency are relocating over 50,000 refugees from two former flood-affected camps to two new ones. Coleto Anjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Let's go back in time to today in 1998. Singer-actor Frank Sinatra died at a Los Angeles hospital at age 82. The hit sitcom Seinfeld aired its final episode after nine years on NBC. And that was Today in History in 1998. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Heavy fighting is reported in Burundi's capital, Bujambura, a day after a former military intelligence chief, Godefroid Niambo, announced he toppled President Pierre Nkurunziza. The Somali government executes two men convicted of killing four lawmakers and an intelligence officer in a series of attacks. 
And United Nations Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon says more measures are needed to combat the proliferation of illicit weapons around the world. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The former First Lady of South Africa and Mozambique has added her voice to a growing campaign to block staff in UN peacekeeping missions from hiding behind immunity when accused of crimes and sexual abuse. Grasa Machel has added her voice to a campaign called Code Blue that calls on the UN Secretary General to immediately waive diplomatic immunity for all mission staff when complaints of sexual exploitation arise. The campaign launched in New York is also calling on UN member states to appoint an independent commission of inquiry to examine every facet of sexual abuse in peacekeeping operations. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Grasa Michelle produced a UN report in 1996 on the impact of armed conflict on children and recommended that all gender-based violence during conflicts be prosecuted as a war crime. Nineteen years later, she believes little has changed within the UN system. These are women and children who have been brutalized by war. And these are people who are eager exactly to find from who represent the so-called international community, the support to say, it's okay. Now we are going to start anew. We are going to have peace and pain is not going to be part of our life again. And this, exactly the same people who infringe. The campaign believes the scale of sex abuse among UN peacekeepers, both military and non-military staff, is shocking and that the UN itself doesn't know the extent of the problem. How does it happen that the more we have sophisticated international laws, instruments, like conventions, protocols, we have also institutions which are expected to enforce those international laws, and people who within institutions are responsible to transform principles to make them alive. It's exactly those people who turn against women and children. Code Blue has called for an amendment to the 1948 Convention on Immunity for UN Civilian Personnel to exclude cases of sexual abuse and exploitation. Preliminary findings by the campaign has found that the vast majority of alleged abuse is by non-military personnel and a smaller percentage by the Blue Helmets themselves. Paula Donovan is the co-director of organization AIDS Free World that is spearheading the campaign. The problem with peacekeeping sexual exploitation and abuse and the application of immunity to UN staff and people who, who report ultimately to the Secretary General is that it's a gross misapplication of the 1946 convention. That convention was never intended to cover crimes. It certainly wasn't intended to cover sexual crimes. And it wasn't intended to provide an obstacle to justice. The UN says it has a zero-tolerance policy against sexual abuse, but waiving immunity remains the prerogative of the Secretary General. 
Donovan's campaign is calling for an independent investigation. Truly independent, commissioned by member states, not by anyone inside the, secretary, inside the Secretariat, must be commissioned to look at every single aspect of immunity and sexual exploitation and abuse and the way it's dealt with by the United Nations system. Co-director of AIDS Free World Stephen Lewis also blasted the UN's handling of a leaked internal report that revealed French troops sexually abused children in the Central African Republic, even though the French were not under UN mandate. It's now a year since those children were interviewed in the Central African Republic, and they knew as early as early May of 2014 that terrible things were being done. And frankly, we believe that the UN should have jumped all over France from that day to this, never giving them a moment when we as a United Nations weren't asking, what are you doing? Have you charged people? Have you taken them to trial? Have you put them in jail? What are you doing about this abuse? The UN has come under scrutiny in recent weeks for initially suspending the official who leaked the report to French authorities and then reinstating him. France is now investigating the claims against its troops. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has arrived in the Chinese city of Xi'an on a three-day visit. Modi will hold talks with President Xi later today. The meeting is expected to focus on economics and expanding trade, heavily skewed in China's favor. Ranasen has more. The world's two most populous nations comprise one-third of humanity, yet bilateral trade hovers at $70 billion, less than half the commercial ties between China and Australia. Indian Foreign Secretary S.J. Shankar squarely blamed Beijing for the imbalance. Somehow we have not been able to be successful in the Chinese market. Two very often cited examples, Indian pharmaceuticals, Indian IT-enabled services. Now both these are areas where India has a very, very successful global footprint, but that footprint hasn't extended to China. Even agricultural products. We have really struggled for a number of years to gain access to the Chinese market. And Modi is eager to secure Chinese funds to revamp India's creaky infrastructure. An economist, Amitabh Khan, said it would be in China's interest to shift its focus to Asia's third largest economy. India is an oasis of growth in the midst of a very barren economic landscape across the world. And therefore, the Chinese model of export-oriented growth will find it very difficult to sustain this growth. And the only way China will be able to sustain this growth is Chinese companies which have created very large and enormous capacities relocate their manufacturing bases to India. But the unresolved border dispute which sparked a war in 1962 comes in the way of building trust and Modi's party ideologue Ram Nayak said China kept the militarized frontiers on the boil with a purpose. We also have to do progress on issues like our borders. We have had a 20-year-old agreement on peace and tranquility on the borders. We have entered into that agreement which is called Peace and Tranquility Agreement. But unfortunately, the history in the last two decades 
has been anything but peace and tranquility along the line of actual control 18 rounds of talks could not resolve the dispute and on the eve of modi's departure li yongcheng beijing's envoy to india told newsbreak bilateral ties were at their most delicate stage three step roadmap the first step is formulate the political parameters and guiding principles which is finished and now we are standing at the second step to formulate a framework which is most difficult each side has their principal stand and also you know a lot of concrete work to be done so we need to be very careful and to make this framework effective and sustainable so it need time to formulate the two asian giants have stiffened their position in a reflection to india's deepening ties with the us and a military cooperation with vietnam and japan the two nations locked in maritime disputes with china beijing in turn has started to build roads rails and ports in what india sees as its strategic backyard this is rana sen reporting from new delhi Regional gender activists are in Harare ahead of the African Union Heads of State Summit in South Africa next month, asking the continental leaders to act on women empowerment. The call is meant to sway African leaders through the current chairperson, Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe, to sign a declaration aimed at reducing poverty amongst women in Africa. According to the delegates, women in Africa lack empowerment and remain poor due to policies that offer little opportunities. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. African leaders have been asked to act on poverty amongst women ahead of the continental heads of state summit in South Africa in June. According to a South African-based advocacy organization called One Africa, poverty levels amongst women in Africa surpass any other continent. Sub-Saharan Africa is the worst affected. One Africa executive director Dr. Sipomoyo said during the launch in Harare. One Africa is a voluntary organization with more than 6 million members globally and a third of that in Africa. During the launch Wednesday, activists said Africa is leading in terms of high maternal mortality, poor agricultural policies, and imbalance in education, high unemployment, and unsustainable energy. Dr. Sipomoyo said African leaders must be accountable to their citizens. And we're a campaign and advocacy organization and our role globally is to uh, essentially fight poverty through influencing policy change. So what we do really to that effect is we monitor the commitments that global leaders make in Africa, in Europe, in America, uh, and then we hold them to account on those commitments, whatever those commitments are. Dr. Sipomoyo is hopeful the campaign launched in Harare Wednesday would yield results just like what the organization did with policies in agriculture on the continent. Um just as an example last year uh in Africa we worked on a big campaign on agriculture uh, because we realized that in 2003 the leaders had made a commitment to uh invest 10% of national budgets in agriculture. When we took stock we realized that less than a handful of countries had actually met that commitment. So what we really wanted to do was to reinvigorate that commitment. Uh we worked with organizations across the continent 
uh, in the end, you know, through a process like this where, you know, we kind of just went country to country, did forums and so on, and heard what the challenges are. And what we like about the, the policy forums is that they bring everybody together. We bring the policymakers, we bring civil society, we bring private sector, uh, really everybody, all the stakeholders come together and discuss what the challenges and the priorities are. And through that process, we came up with policy recommendations that were really quite solid and as a result of that, you know, we got the leaders to actually sign a strong declaration at the AU summit last year in, in Malabo for agriculture. Activists at the launch in Harare said 2015 is a year for women empowerment and development and the launch is aimed at making sure continental policies are tailor-made to reduce poverty among its women. Dr. Moy edits. So this year, uh, 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 it's the year, it's the African Union's year of um, women's empowerment. It is also the year that the global leaders will meet at the General Assembly in September to agree on the new development agenda, which will replace the MDGs. And we're thinking, what better opportunity than this year to seize the moment to refocus the attention of the world on the issues of girls and women's empowerment. And just to say that this is a challenge not just in Africa, it's a challenge globally. And we, you know, we thought we'll come and do a big launch in Zimbabwe uh, because we're excited that Zimbabwe is actually chairing the African Union Summit. So what we would like is that when the leaders meet under the chairmanship of His Excellency President Robert Mugabe, uh, they will actually come up with a strong declaration for women's empowerment, for girls and women's empowerment. And uh, the only way that can be a strong declaration is when it really comes from the voices of women and girls and men across the continent. Zimbabwean President of the Senate, Edna Mazongwe, bemoaned the low participation of women in economic development as a continental setback. Today, we gather to deliberate on gender and poverty in Zimbabwe and beyond. It is sad to note that poverty is sexist. And the low participation of women in economic development continues to result in failure to achieve sustainable development. I say congratulations, One Campaign and Women's Coalition of Zimbabwe for convening such a relevant policy forum on gender and poverty. A rare base feminist Teresa Mugadza urged African leaders to deal with real social problems in African societies if poverty among its women is to be eradicated. We have put African women in a box that says African women only operate in the social, economic and cultural context. We talk about poverty in that context and we don't deal with the real issues. And for me that is my problem with the whole discourse around poverty being sexist and not dealing with the structural issues which are why are women poor and what structures have we created that make women poor. The launch is taking place at a time when Zimbabwean leader President Robert Mugabe is chairing the African Union and through his office is calling for women empowerment and development. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchema. It's 8.45 Central African time and our economics update up next. I'm Tabi Solohoku with this economic update. 
Global market figures show that world output has been declining. Botswana has been no exception as it has employed austerity measures and significantly reduced spending. Since the 2008 global recession, Botswana's Minister of Finance, Ken Matambo, has repeatedly talked about achieving more with less, which implies that government will reduce the number of contracts which it gives out to businesses. However, analysts maintain that government remains the biggest money spinner because it is the largest consumer of goods and services in the economy. Gold mining companies in South Africa say they will consider job security and the sustainability of the industry in upcoming wage talks. They were reacting to the news that Labour Union AMCU would demand a two-fold increase to minimum pay in upcoming talks. The Chamber of Mines says employers have to consider that up to 50% of gold production is either unprofitable or marginal. The demands by AMCU are similar to those which led to a five-month strike in the platinum sector last year. Several filling stations in Kenya ran out of stock on Tuesday, yet the storage agency had 101 million litres for more than a week. The National Storage Agency, Kenya Pipeline Company Petroleum, says dealers have been creating an artificial fuel shortage in anticipation of higher prices today. On Monday, the Energy Regulatory Commission warned oil marketers against hoarding the commodity after shortages were reported in various towns. South Africa's ruling African National Congress in Johannesburg will lead a march to Soweto of Soweto residents to power utility Eskim offices today. The march follows last Friday's power cuts in Soweto, South Africa's biggest township, which lasted for more than 10 hours. The ANC says Eskom failed to inform residents in advance about this. The power cuts have followed a week of protests in Soweto, where residents were demanding to pay a flat rate for electricity and that prepaid meters be removed. Imperial Southern Cross Motors, trading as Nissan Zambia, has invested more than $34 million in the last 10 months. It's been operating in the country. The company has called for an increase in the production of low-sulfur diesel to accommodate new motor vehicle models. Principal dealers say this is just the start as the company is planning to increase the number of vehicle selling points, which would see more investments. Indicators at the Sawa on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance in the final hour of Africa Rise and Shine. This before a sport update with Figile Lungwati. The US dollar trades at 11.96 South African Rand, 9.69 in Botswana, 7.30 in Zambia, 0.65 British Pound, 8.9 Euro, Gold 1.212 dollars, Platinum 1.146 dollars an ounce, Brand Crude 6.6 dollars, 55 cents a barrel. I'm Tabiso Lohoku. Figure Lilingwati up next with a sports update. In our sports update this hour, we're starting off with cycling news. Team MTN Kobega will make history as the first African-registered team to take part in the Tour de France. But they also aim to put 5,000 children on bicycles in, their, in raising awareness and galvanizing support from South Africans. And that's crucial 
to make history. Team Kobega principal Doug Ryder has more. We're initiating now from now right through until you know the end of the Tour de France and if we can raise awareness and funds to put you know 5,000 kids on bikes through our bicycleschangelives.com website it'll really make an impact on on more than you know more than the riders that are going to be taking part in our professional cycling team in the Tour de France and it'll, it'll give them a I guess a deeper meaning and a deeper purpose to to race as hard as they can, and uh, and and to try and get the world to support, and obviously South Africans to support, and um, you know Team MT in Quebec as we as we embark on this historical moment of um, you know the first ever African team in the Tour de France, and to be able to put you know five thousand kids on bikes through that and get people's awareness to that and, and the opportunities that these kids can get. Um, you know that that do receive bicycles through the Quebec charity would be you know just incredible. I mean they could get educated, they could you know better you know get to school and back, and uh, and and that's the kind of a big campaign around around the Tour de France. On to football news: South Africa's Bafana Bafana team, set to compete in the Kosafa Cup, will play training matches against the national team of Lesotho. The team, which comprises of locally based players, started preparations for the tournament on Monday. Players included in the team wants to impress coach Sheikh Mashaba and cement their places in the team during the tournament which has launched the careers of some of the country's soccer stars like Tiko Mudise. Pumelele Bengu, who is the National First Division's top scorer with 22 goals, is among the players from the lower league who are part of the team. So for us, it's, it's very good because Coach Sheikh is giving all the... It shows that Coach Sheikh believes to each and every player who is playing in South Africa or outside South Africa, especially for us players who have been playing in the, who have done well in Belo to be given an opportunity to be part of Bafan and to win the Kosovo Cup. Zambia coach Ona Janza has ruled out any possibility of calling up his TB Mazembe trio for the 2015 Kosovo Castle Cup getting underway in South Africa this weekend. Janza says defender Kabaso Chongo, striker Given Sunguluma and Zambia captain Rainford Galaba will not be available due to their forthcoming 2015 CAF Champions League commitments. The Zambia coach, however, added that fit again midfielder Nathan Singala, who played his first match in Sunday's 2-0 friendly win over Malawi since January, was more likely to make the team. Janza revealed that he's also considering the Israeli-based duo of defender Emmanuel Mbola and striker Ivan Skangwa for Kosafa Cup duty. The duo wrapped up their 2014-2015 season obligations this weekend with Hapul Ranana. Zambia are the defending champions of the Kosafa Cup. Zambia has been handed a preliminary group stage by and will enter the competition on the 25th of May. In netball news, South Africa's netball team, the Spa Proteas, are in Ireland to compete in the European Netball Championship. South Africa will open the campaign against Scotland on Thursday. South Africa's netball, South Africa's president, Mimim Teta, is confident that the team will do well in Northern Ireland. Despite of us not having all the key players or all the senior players, we are quite confident that the younger players that, that uh, have... Uh, been uh, you know lined up are also going to do us proud. We are also confident that the, the senior players that are there are going to really play a, a, a role, you know, a leadership role, and also support the young players. So uh, to, to, to sum it up, I would really say we are confident that we have taken a very a good decision in making sure that we give these players opportunity. That's your spot news.
this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amuka na unai. That wraps up Africa. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine for today. East African leaders condemn Burundi coup attempt. Ordinary people bear the brunt of conflict in Sudan's Darfur region. And concerns over the plight of South Sudanese refugees in Ethiopia. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magaza, technical producer Charles Moyo, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Kofi Olomide with a track titled Loi.
Asiba kukiko bumangaite 